Well, again, uh, welcome to the first Sunday of 2020, 2020. Have y'all gotten used to saying that yet? I don't know why I was thinking about this this morning, early this morning when I got up, and I was thinking about uh, years ago, remember when we used to write checks? Uh, some of you remember that word, Pastor Brad, I don't, I don't know where he went. Uh, are you still in here somewhere? Oh, you're in the back. Did, do you write checks? No. Do you know what a check is? No. No, okay. <laughs> So back when we used to write, you know, these little pieces of paper that uh, how we'd spend our money, I remember it used to take me like six months, you know, to get used to writing the year that we're in, you know, breaking into a new year. And so it's always weird going into a new year. But here we are, 2020. And so uh, we're kind of playing off that idea. We started this last week, but we we started a a series that we're calling uh, 2020 Vision. And uh, last week I shared with you a passage of Scripture, probably, probably the most famous passage of Scripture in all of the Bible when it talks about vision. It's found in Proverbs chapter 29, and it tells us that where there is no vision, last week I shared this with you, that word for vision is a word uh, that is a Hebrew word, kazown, uh, and, it, and that word means uh, dream, revelation, vision. And so the writer of Proverbs says where there's none of that, it says the people perish, and so vision is important. The people perish where there's no vision, and, and again, not necessarily physically, but when we don't have vision, things like hope dies. When we don't have vision, things like faith dies, our, our preferred future dies. And so last week, we talked about the importance of having a personal vision. We need to have a vision personally, and if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and watch it online. There's lots of places you can do that, but go to our website or our app, and I really encourage you to watch it because I believe with all of my heart that what will change the world is when a bunch of God's people embrace and then begin living out the God-sized dreams that he places in our hearts. You know, if we, if we want to make the world great, that will make the world great. And so uh, if you missed last week, I inter- encourage you to go back and watch. But this week, and actually uh, for the next three weeks, I want to begin talking about the importance of having a corporate vision. It's important that we have a clear vision, not only for what God has for us personally, but also as a church, corporately as well. Um, it, it's been a couple of years, I guess, now uh, that we began to talk about this within our leadership team. And uh, I hadn't been here very long, and, and uh, I had come from a church where I, I had a good grasp of, you know, who God had called us to be and, and kind of how he wanted to flesh that out within us uh, in the things that we did. But, but I came to Connecting Point, and this was a new place for me. And so I, I knew that it would be foolish simply to just take everything we did there and bring it here. Uh, because Lincoln is different than Spring Hill. And so what we did, and some of you remember this, but we began just having lots of conversations with lots of different groups of people. You know, I went and talked to connect groups and Sunday school classes and ministry teams and, of course, uh, our staff on our church board. And actually, the conversation that we had revolved around one simple question. And the question was this. What kind of a church do you believe God wants Connecting Point to be in 10 years? We're talking about vision. What kind of a church do you believe God wants Connecting Point to be in 10 years? And we structured the question the way that we did on purpose because, uh, first of all, we felt like it was very important. We wanted to know, you know, first of all, not what kind of a church do you want it to be? Or what kind of a church do I want it to be? It doesn't matter what you or I want. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons why so many churches are dying because they have been built around personal preference. What really matters and what really will make a difference in the world is what does God want? So we ask the question, what kind of church does God want us to be? It's, it's important, again, for us to dream God dreams, not only personally, but collectively. And so what kind of a church does God want Connecting Point to be? And then the question said in 10 years, not tomorrow. So, you know, we got to have time to get there. we got to put the things in place. we got to have time to get there. And not 50 years from now, not so far out. That, I mean, come on, how many of us are going to be around in 50 years? Pastor Brad. So, <laughs> and Ron Becker is very hopeful back there. So... But, but, but so, so we, we did that on purpose, you know, what kind of a church, so in 10 years we can look back and say, okay, we made it, this is who God wants us to be. And many of you were a part of these conversations, and so if you remember, what we did is I just asked that question and then let you talk. 
And, and in fact, with every group that we met, we just wrote down everything that you said on a whiteboard. We believe that God wants us to be this. We believe that God wants us to be that. We just wrote it down. And then we took all of that, all, everything we got from all the different groups, and we put it on a spreadsheet so it was all together. And then our staff at the time, we took off for the mountains. Because, you know, like in, you know, in the Bible, when people want to connect with God, they go to the mountains. So we went to the mountains. And uh, actually, our reason wasn't that spiritual. Uh, Laura's parents own a home in Colorado, and they said we could come use it for free. And so we went to the mountains. But, but we had a great time as a staff just praying and dreaming. And one of the things that we did was we took, and I didn't even know they made these, but these huge, you seen those huge post-its, like post-it notes, that they're like this big? So we took these huge post-it notes, and we put them all around the room, and we listed everything that you said, this is who we believe God wants us to be on those post-it notes, so we could see it. And what we discovered was that in every single conversation that we had, without exception, there were four words that emerged every single time. They, they were the words belong, connect, grow, and serve. What, what every single group said is that we believe that God wants us to be a church where people feel like they belong. We feel like that God wants us to be a church where, where people can not only connect with each other, but they can connect with God. And, and we believe that God wants us to be a church where we can grow in our relationship with God, wherever we're at on the journey, that we can just grow in our relationship. And then you said, we believe that, that God wants Connecting Point to be a place where each of us as individuals can take our God-given talents and abilities and passions, and we can employ them for the sake of the kingdom. We believe that Connecting Point, God wants Connecting Point to be a place where we can serve. And, and so it, it became very clear to us, it just seemed like God was speaking to us collectively, this is my dream for you as a church. This is my vision for Connecting Point, to be a church where everyone feels like they belong and can genuinely connect and grow and serve Jesus and each other. And that became our vision statement. And so this is the vision that we believe God has given to us. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this as we move into a new decade. So that when we get to the year 2030, again, what we can do is we can look back and say, wow, by the grace of God, he has helped us be who he's called us to be. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to begin by talking about that word belonging. In fact, I want to talk to you about the power of belonging. I recently heard a quote from Robin Williams. Y'all remember Robin Williams? The, the great comedian actor that tragically took his own life here five or six years ago. Well, Robin Williams once said this. He said, some people say the worst thing in the world is to be alone. He went on to say that's not true. He said the worst thing in the world is to be with people who make you feel alone. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's not in the Bible, but it should be. I, I want to read that to you again because I think it's so profound and I'm convinced it perfectly articulates how so many people feel in this world that we live in. He said, people say the worst thing in the world is to be alone. It's not true. The worst thing in the world is to be around people who make you feel alone. I, I believe that's so true. David said it like this. He said in his Psalms, he said, I was in the midst of the congregation and I was alone. There's something powerful about a culture that welcomes you. But, but I'm, I realize that there's something just as powerful about a culture that sends you a big old message that says you don't belong. I mean, you may be with us, but you're not one of us. Some of you may be familiar with the name Brene Brown. Dr. Brene Brown is a clinical researcher, and I first heard her speak a couple of years ago at the Global Leadership Summit. And she's, she's famous for her research in the power of vulnerability. In fact, um, she has a TED Talk on the power of vul vulnerability that's one of the most viewed TED Talks in all the history of TED Talks. And I know some of you are going like, who is TED and what's he talking about, you know? 
Uh, TED is a, a, a series of talks. They do these conventions all over, and they have experts in all kinds of areas talk about all kinds of different things. And, and uh, they, they actually had invited me to, be, to come do a TED talk, um, but all of, this, all of the speeches have to be less than 18 minutes. And so I was like, man, I can't even say hello in 18 minutes. And so... <laughs> Uh, no, but, but anyway, she, they, they didn't invite me really, but, um, but, but she did this TED Talk, very popular, and uh, she wasn't a Christian at the time, I believe she is now, but she opens this TED Talk by sharing her own challenge, and, and again, she's approaching this as a social scientist and as a researcher, what she's interested in is gathering data that reveals what is it that causes people to behave the way that they behave. And so she asked herself this question, is there one common need among all of humanity? Regardless of your gender, your ethnicity, your social status, whatever, is there one common thread that each and every person is born with? And so in search of the answer to that question, she began to interview thousands upon thousands of people over a two-year period of time. And what she discovered was, is there is indeed one thing that every single person has in common. And I just want to put it in her words. She said that what she found out was that everybody in the world is neurobiologically wired for connection. Everybody in the world is, is hardwired for connection. In other words, what she discovered through science, and she later says this, is that every single person on this planet is biologically wired to feel like they belong. And so she asked herself, okay, so, so if that's true, then what is the enemy of that? What keeps people from feeling like they belong? If everyone has, has the shared need to belong that they are created with, then what is it that keeps people from feeling like they belong? And, and so she asked, are there several reasons or is it just one thing? And what she discovered, and this was after six or eight years, something like that of research, after interviewing thousands of people, that again, there is one common theme that is present among people who, who don't, feel that sense of belonging. And what she discovered is that that one thing is shame. Shame. Shame is the one thing that keeps people who long to experience a sense of belonging from actually experiencing what they long for. Shame. And so she defines shame like this. And, and she uses a little bit different language than we would use here in the church. She says that shame is condemnation. Now, we would use the word conviction because I would equate condemnation with shame. But, but so let's just use our language that conviction says I did something wrong while shame says I am something wrong. And, and here's the problem. When, when all I have is this deep-seated feeling that, that I am something wrong, then there is always going to be a fear that exists that says, man, I cannot let anybody really know me. Because if you really know me, there's no way that you could ever love it or accept me. And so I put up walls. And whatever it is that the environment that you long to belong to, whatever it is that that environment values. And so for us in the church, if it's a relationship with God or, or, or spiritual things, whatever the environment is, shame says, I'll never be good enough at that for those people to accept me. I'll never be spiritual enough. If it, if it were in the environment of a gym, you know, I'll never be in shape enough. If it's a university, I'll never be smart enough. If it's a group of ladies, I'll never be beautiful enough. You, you get the idea. Whatever it is that that culture values, shame and fear says, I'll never be good enough at that to really belong. And so the result is that we begin to build up walls around us to keep uh, other people from discovering that I am not what you value. That's what shame does. And what's interesting about all of this is that what took Brene Brown something like, you know, six to eight years to discover through science is simply what the Bible has been teaching for over 2,000 years. Shame is a product of sin. The, the fallen world that we live in. I mean, you think about the original story. Adam and Eve sin, and immediately shame sets in. And so what do they do? They hide, right? And people have been hiding ever since. 
And one of the things that I think is so tricky about this, this fallen world that we live in, and, and, and really it's, it's what's tricky about the devil, one of the names that the Bible calls the devil is the tempter or the deceiver. And one of the things that is so tricky about the devil, the deceiver, is that he's the one that tempts us to sin, and then when we fall into temptation, what he does is then he heaps condemnation upon us, you know? Well, look at you. What a failure you are. What a terrible person you are. How could anyone ever love you? How could God ever love or accept you? Listen, what I want you to understand this morning is shame does not come from God. Shame comes directly from the enemy of our souls. The Bible tells us that there is now no condemnation. In other words, there is no shame in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said of the church of Jesus. Now, I, I don't think we mean to. But, but sometimes I think we are guilty in the church of using shame as a tool to try to get people to do what we think they ought to do. And I, I'm just being honest here. I remember, you know, when, back when I was a young preacher, just getting started, and, you know, I was excited, and I was full of zeal, and, but, but one of the things that I think I was guilty of, and I didn't mean to, and, and, and the truth is, I probably still fall into it at times, but, but I would preach in such a way, I was excited and full of energy, and, and not anything like now, but, but I, I, would, I would preach, you know, you know, you ought to be passionate for Jesus. Why aren't you, 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 why aren't you, why don't you love Jesus? You ought to love Jesus. Now, I know some of you may be wondering, you know, what's wrong with that? That's what we ought to preach, right? We, we should love Jesus. We should be passionate for Jesus. And I agree that that is the goal. But let me ask you this. If someone tells you, you should be passionate, does that make you passionate? Probably not. I mean, listen, if, if I'm not passionate about something, telling me I ought to be passionate about that thing doesn't make me passionate. What it does is it makes me shamed. It, it reminds me of what I'm not. And of, of course, you know, the, of course we want to bring people to a place where they love Jesus. Of course we want to bring people to a place where they're passionate for Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what we want. But what I'm saying is in the church, even though our intentions have been very right, sometimes our methods have been very wrong. And in certain circles, we have become experts in trying to shame people into certain behaviors. And it never works. And we've talked about this before, but one of the things, again, that we're, excuse me, that we're guilty of in the church, and, and again, I, I just need to make this clear. When I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the big C church, okay? I'm not talking specifically about us because we always get it right. But one of the things that I think we're guilty of in the big C church is sometimes we operate under the unspoken mantra of if you behave like us and if you believe like us then you can belong to us and what i want to propose to you this morning is is that that kind of thinking is polar opposite of not only how we are wired as human beings but it's polar opposite of how jesus ever operated and on top of that it doesn't make sense I mean, why would we expect someone who doesn't believe like us to behave like us? It doesn't even make any sense. And yet, unknowingly, we've set up this structure that is designed not to bring people in and help them find a place of belonging and connection, but we've designed a structure, and again, unknowingly, to keep people out. If you don't believe, and if you don't behave, then you don't belong. And I propose that it ought to be the opposite. The, I, I believe that it ought to be you can belong here even before you believe or behave like us. And so when people come in, and I know we have good, good hearts, and we're like, hey, you ought to love Jesus. And inside they're like, well, I don't. I, I don't even know him. Or, or maybe they come in and it's like the him that I think I know is someone who doesn't like me very much because I never measure up. I mean, that isn't really somebody that I'm drawn to. Well, you should be passionate about him. 
Well, I'm not. Well, you should be. Listen, telling me doesn't move me towards passion. What it does is it moves me towards shame. And I think about this. It's true. And unfortunately, it, this isn't just the way that we treat people in the church. It's the way we often treat people that we love. Spouses. Kids. You know, with our kids, we're like, especially our teens. Because, come on, they're, they're, they're teenagers, right? You know, they're just like, you know, there's a portion of their brains that it's just dead. <laughs> It's like, why'd you do that? Oh, no. <laughs> and the truth is, they actually don't know. Because, because again, science have show, has shown us that there is a, a part of the brain that is actually dead in teenagers. It's not alive yet. The frontal lobe of their brain doesn't even spring into life until they're like 16, 17, 18. And it's not fully developed until they're somewhere in their early to mid-20s. And, and it's the frontal lobe of the brain that ca is the cause and effect part of the brain. And, and so it's like, you know, I jumped off the roof because I didn't think two seconds ahead. That if I jump, I'm going to have to land. You know, because the frontal part of my brain isn't developed, so I don't think about the landing part. I only think about the jumping part. And so when you ask your average teenager, who's now wearing a cast, you know, why'd you do that? The answer is what? I don't know. They really don't. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about... Um, and Dad, I don't know, you probably remember this. I, I was 13 or something at the time. Uh, early, I was just entering into being a teen. And my dad had bought these brand new white wall tires he had put on the, his car. You know, this is back when white walls were cool. And so he, he bought these brand new white wall tires. He put them on the car. And uh, I don't know what I was doing, but I found a can of red spray paint. <laughs> you remember that? I painted all of the white walls bright red and my dad was like why did you do that i still don't know <laughs> i don't know why i did that my brain was dead and and so in frustration you know when our kids they don't have any motivation they don't want to do their homework they don't want to do their chores they don't want to go to church all they want to do is sit on their phones or play video games and without a frustration we're like and i know trust me i've been there you need to quit being so lazy why are you so lazy you need to have some motivation you need to get off your butt and do something and i know again i've been there it's frustrating but but let me ask you this have you ever had anything in your life that you knew you should do, but yet you don't. Oh, come on, it's getting personal now. I mean, we all have those things, right? Like, like for me, come on. Does anybody here really believe that I don't know I ought to lose a few pounds? Come on. Some of you are looking at me like, well, obviously you don't. You... <laughs> and, and let me ask you this. I mean, does anybody here think that I don't know how to do it? Again, well, obviously, no, I mean, I know how to, you know, at least the first 20. I mean, come on. We, we all have those things in our lives that we know we ought to do, but we just don't do. And, and let me ask you this. If I were to come to you and I were to say to you, you know, you really need to do this. Because I've been watching a lot of you and I know a lot of things you ought to do. You know, but if I were to come to you and say, maybe you're like me, you need to lose some weight. And if I were to grab you and look you in the eye and say, hey, I don't know if you knew this or not, but you're fat. <laughs> and you need to lose some weight. Would that motivate you? No. So, so when we react to our teens or our kids or our spouse or the people that we love like that, you know, you need to quit being so lazy. You need to have some motivation. Do you think that makes them feel motivated? No. In fact, I would propose that what it does, especially with our kids, is it simply, simply drives them deeper into their cave called my room. They never want to be around me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why it is. They never want to be around me. All they do is sit in their room and stare at their phone. I wonder why. I mean, come out here and let me talk to you more about what you're not. 
Who wants to go through that? And again, if I, were to, if I were to grab you individually and say, hey, you know, in case you didn't know, I've noticed this defici deficiency in your life. This is what's wrong with you. And what you need to do is you need to fix it. So why don't you just try harder? Why, why don't you just act better? Why don't you just do better? You need to get motivated. Do you think that would motivate you? No. What would it make you feel? I would suggest probably shame. And let me ask you this. What side of the kingdom is shame on? Not on the God side. Listen, here, here's why this is so important. How we deal with people who don't behave. How we deal with people who don't behave the way we want them to behave. How we deal with people who don't behave the way they should behave. Matters. It's important. Because you see, being alone isn't the worst thing in the world. Being around people who make you feel alone, that's devastating. And the sad reality is this, is that there is a, an entire generation of people who, who, who have this aversion to the church. They don't want to have anything to do with the church because, again, I think, I think most of the time it's not our purpose, but it's because we have used shame as a motivator. And the problem is this, when, the, when, there's, when there's this underlying message that because you don't behave like us, you can't belong to us, you, you don't behave and so you deserve to be punished, and we're going to shun you or isolate you until you get your act together, the, the, the problem is that neither honors God nor does it connect anybody to him. In fact, I would propose it pushes people further away. And so what I, I want to propose to you this morning is is that if there is any place on the planet where people who don't behave ought to feel like they're loved and feel like they belong, it ought to be the church. Because can I just tell you, being isolated, you know, because you don't perform on the level of everybody else, it sucks. I, I've talked about this before, but... Um, you know, on the rare occasion that I have a few hours to kill, um, one of the things I love to do is I love to play golf. And uh, now, anybody who has ever played with me um, knows that I stink at golf. I'm not, I'm not very good at golf. But I still love to play. And, and like most golfers, I, I guess, you know, the thing that keeps me coming back is on the rare occasion when all the stars align and I actually hit the ball straight. Or I sink a long putt, you know, it, 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 it causes me to want to come back and it causes me to want to, want to play. But, but, but I haven't always liked golf. In, in fact, my love for the game only developed once we moved here to Lincoln. Years ago, uh, we lived in Kearney. I mean, this was when Laura and I first got married and I was in my mid-20s. We lived in Kearney and I decided I wanted to learn how to play golf. And so I, I didn't hang out with people who played golf. I didn't watch golf. I just decided, hey, that looks fun. I, I ought to try it. And so I went to Walmart. I bought a cheap uh, set of clubs. And uh, in Kearney, there's this goat ranch of a course um, that you can play for like 15 bucks. And people like me go to play at this course. And so I went out there, and I hit the ball around. And because I didn't know any better, I wasn't playing with people who knew how to play golf, I thought, hey, I'm not too bad at this, you know? I hit the ball, and it goes forward. So I'm not doing too bad here. Well, there was this guy that I worked with. And again, I was young, and he was one of those guys that everybody looked up to, and he was one of the cool guys at work, and everybody liked him. And inside, silently, you know, I kind of wanted to be like him. And he always talked about golf. And so one day, I got the courage up, because I wanted to be his friend, and I invited him to go play golf with me. And he said yes. And so I was so excited, you know, I'm hanging out with a cool guy. We're going to go play golf. We're going to be best friends. It's all very exciting and a little bit creepy, but, but still, we're going to be friends, you know. And so the day came where we actually played, and we, we teed off on the first hole, and it was a short par three, and, and, and he was good. And I mean, he hit his first shot, and it landed about two feet from the pin. And then I got up. And I took this big, massive swing, and I topped the ball, and it almost made it to the women's tee box. <laughs> and so I'm embarrassed now, you know because he's really good, and I'm obviously not that good. And, and, and so I'm sure he was trying to help, but he said, you know, you know what your problem is? Your stance is all wrong. 
And he said, and you pulled your head up and you didn't grip the club right and you didn't keep your front arm straight enough. And then he went on to list about 10 other things that I was doing wrong. Pretty much I wasn't doing anything right. But, but, but I didn't know. I mean, nobody had taught me. I, had, I just had this desire to play. I thought, it looks like fun. I want to play. And so, so I, I, you know, I, all this is going on. I get up the second time. I'm nervous now. I'm embarrassed. And I top the second shot again. This time I make it past the women's tee box, but not by very far. And again, you know, he's got this whole list of things that I was doing wrong. And, and the day just went downhill from there. I was embarrassed, and, and I could tell he was embarrassed to be with me because we were making people late, we were playing slow, and he was good, and I wasn't good, and he's with me, and that's a reflection on him. And it, it was a disaster, and we were supposed to play 18, but by the time we got done with nine, he had some excuse why he needed to go and couldn't finish. And long story short, you know, first of all, we didn't become best friends. But for 25 years... I hated golf. Didn't want to have anything to do with golf. In fact, I went home that very day. My brother-in-law at the time, he, he was in town and he was thinking about golf. I sold him my golf clubs. I bought fishing poles, Jerome. That's why I fish. I never golfed again. And then we moved here. And I met Chris Cole. <laughs> and, and a bunch of you know Chris. He and his wife, Abby, abandoned us a couple of years ago. Now, he took a job in Indianapolis a couple of years ago, but for those of you who know Chris, Chris is one of those cool guys that everybody wants to be like, and Chris is an incredible golfer, and so I met Chris, and if you know Chris, you can't talk to him for more than 10 minutes without him talking about golf, and he loves golf, and so Chris and I became friends, and eventually he says, hey, we ought to go out and play golf. Man, 25 years of shame all of a sudden come flooding in, man. I stink at golf. I, I hate golf, I, I, and, and so I'm like, nah, man, I don't want to play, and Chris, he just kept pestering me, he's like, you know, come on, come play with me, I'm like, Chris, I stink at golf, and Chris is like, so what? I mean, I guarantee you, you're not as bad as you think you are, and after some prodding, he finally talks me into going to the driving range, you know, we don't have to play, let's just go hit some golf balls, and so we go, and I hit a few golf balls, and, and Chris is like, look at you, man, you're way better than you tried to convince me you were, I wasn't. He, I was still terrible, but he was encouraging me. And he's like, man, he goes, you know, the reality is you've got a lot of good things going for you. He said, in fact, your natural swing is way better than my natural swing. And I guarantee you, if you work on it, you're going to see an improvement. And, and, and he said, is there, can I just show you one thing, just one little thing? And if you do this, I promise it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to improve things for you. It's going to make you better. And, and, and so I think he showed me something with my grip. Now listen, what I want you to understand is there was a whole bunch of things that I needed to do different. I wasn't doing anything right other than I had a club in my hands and a ball on a tee. But after that, I wasn't doing anything right. And, and, and Chris, though he didn't embarrass me, he didn't shame me, he encouraged me, he didn't overwhelm me with everything I was doing wrong. He just picked one thing and then he encouraged me. And then I did what I sh when I did what, what he showed me to do, he praised me. And then he kept inviting me to play. You know, he wasn't embarrassed to be with me. He kept inviting me to play. And, and, and while my play wasn't a whole lot different than it was 25 years earlier, I mean, Chris, you know, he'd hit the ball and it'd go a mile straight and it'd take me like four strokes to get to where he hit his drive. But he was encouraging and we had so much fun. And then he invited me to play on a couple of his tournament teams, like, Come be a part of this. Come play with me on the turn to me. Now, it was a four-man scramble, so it was the best ball scramble. So we used a lot of his balls. But the one time we used mine, man, he prayed. What a nice putt. And he praised me for it. Well, guess what happened? I, I went from really wanting to play golf to hating golf because I was shamed at how bad I was at playing golf, to loving golf again because I had a friend who made me feel like I belonged. <laughs> wow, you know, that's great, Doug. <laughs> I went from having no passion because of my shame to having passion because I belonged. He didn't have to say to me, you really ought to like golf. Now listen, I know in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter whether I like golf. But the reason I said all of this is because what happened to me on the golf course has happened to every single one of us in some way or another. 
Every single one of us have felt like I felt. And listen, feeling alone, feeling unwelcome, feeling like you don't belong, stinks. And it's something that should never happen in the church. And if there's any place where people should feel at home, if there's any place where people should feel like they belong, it's here. This is the place of connection. And the reason that people come here in the beginning is because deep down inside, they may not even realize it, but what's drawn them here is they desperately want to connect with God. Maybe they just don't know how. And here's the deal. If when they get up the courage to give it a shot, and all that happens is they're reminded of how much they stink at connecting with God, then they're probably going to respond to him the same way I responded to golf. You know, why even bother? I stink at it. I can't do it. All those people can, but I can't. And, and folks, we talk about this all the time, but the call of the people of God has always been to reflect the character of God. Are you, are you with me? Sometimes when you're quiet, I wonder if you're listening to me or not. The, the call of the people of God has always been to reflect the character of God. It's always, it's always been, you know, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus has always been to follow the example of Jesus, to just do what he did. And so, I know, we've been talking about science and we're in the church and science and the church doesn't always mesh for whatever reason. So, so, so let's just talk about how did Jesus treat people who had a desire to connect with him but they lived in such a way that made them kind of stink at connecting with him. This last week, God opened my eyes to a story that, honestly, I'd read over and over and over again. In fact, I'd preached on it several times. And this last week, I heard this brilliant teacher talking about this, and it hit me that all of these years, I had missed a very important piece of this story, and it caused me to totally get the story wrong. And so what I want to do is I just want to read it to you. It's found in John chapter 4, and we're going to end with this story. But it's John chapter 4. It's a story. Sometimes we call it the story of the woman at the well. Sometimes we call it the, the uh, Samaritan woman. But John chapter 4, I'm just going to pick it up in verse 5 and read it to you. Verse 5 says, So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, I want to pause here for just a moment, and I'm going to finish the story in a second, but, but I want to give you a little context because the context is important. We, we've talked about this before, but in, in the first century Jewish world, women had absolutely no social or legal status. In fact, in, in the first century Jewish world, women were considered to be on the same level as dogs. They were the property of men. In fact, according to the Talmud, which was the Jewish law, women couldn't be taught the Bible, the Torah. In fact, one of the most famous rabbis of the first century said this. He said, I'd rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. If a woman went outside, she had to cover herself from head to toe. And if she talked to a man, it was grounds for divorce. And if the husband decided, she could actually be stoned in the street simply for talking to a man. For a man, it was also illegal to talk to a woman in public. He could speak to a woman in his own home, but it was against the law for him to speak to her outside of the home. A woman, again, because they had no legal status, a woman could not divorce her husband for any reason. 
I mean, he could treat her however he wanted. He could abuse her. He could have relationships with other women. Typically, they had multiple wives. But, but he could do anything he wanted. It was illegal for her to divorce her husband. She couldn't divorce her husband for any reason. But a man, on the other hand, could divorce his wife for any reason. I mean, if she did anything to displease him, it was grounds for a divorce. A woman, a woman, again, no legal status. A woman couldn't be a witness in a court case. Even if she was an eyewitness to a crime, even if she was the victim of the crime, she couldn't be a witness in a court of law for herself because in that culture, she was considered inherently incapable of telling the truth. This was the culture. This is the context. But, but what's, what's most dramatic in this story is the idea of a Samaritan. You see, a Samaritan was a half-breed. They were disrespected by every other uh, people group. They were discriminated against. They were looked down upon. They were considered the mongrels of the human race. And so Jesus, in this story, this is what's so amazing. Jesus, in this story, is not only talking to a woman, which is against the religious law, but he's also talking to a Samaritan, which violates the social law. And so immediately she says to them, how do you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, to give you a drink? And basically what she's doing here is she's immediately putting up her walls. You know, I don't know why you're talking to me. I don't know what you're up to. You people think you're too good for us Samaritans. And so by the way, I'm going to reject you before you reject me. That's what we do, right? I'm going to reject you so you can't hurt me. This is what's happening in the story. In her mind, it's like, I already know that you're going to reject me, and so I'm going to react to, you, to what I already know. And I love this, because Jesus being Jesus, and he sees a fuller picture than anybody else sees, he totally ignores her rejection, and he doesn't react to her defensiveness. And instead, he says this, he says, if you only knew who you're talking to. If you, if you only knew that the person you're talking to isn't somebody who looks down on you. If you only knew the person that you're talking to, he wants to give you a water that will cause you to never be thirsty again. If you only knew the person that you're talking to is not somebody who will reject you. Don't, don't miss what he's saying. What Jesus is really saying is he's saying, regardless of how you feel and regardless of what's happened to you in the past, I value you. I value you. You belong in this conversation with me. Now, now, this is a smart woman. Because immediately her response is, she goes, you're not greater than our father who gave us this well. But what she's doing here is immediately she realizes that she needs to change gears because Jesus wants to connect with her. She doesn't have to be so defensive. And so she drops her defensiveness and she says, you're not greater than our father. Not, not your father, Jacob, not my father, Jacob, but our father. We have this commonality here. When she realizes that Jesus is trying to connect, she immediately opens the door. The walls immediately begin to come down. And she says, you're not greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us, you and me, this well. This is such a crazy story because this woman, she's never known anyone, especially a man who would place so much value on her and who was willing to bypass all the laws of society, bypass the religious rules and regulations, bypass all the social norms simply to open the door for her to belong to something she so desperately needed and inside she so desperately wanted. But she never thought she could have because the door had never been opened to her before. She says, you know, you don't, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. Jesus answers. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Uh-oh. I have no husband, she replies. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with 
now, or the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Wow. Sir, the woman says, I can see you're a prophet. This is the part that until recently, I I think I've always misunderstood. Whenever I've read this passage of Scripture, whenever I've taught on it, whenever I've preached on it, I've always understood this passage of Scripture um, differently. You know, and then this profound teacher brought this to my attention. In my mind, whenever I read this, I only saw Jesus pointing out this woman's sin. In my mind, whenever I thought about the Samaritan woman, in my mind, I thought, you know, she's kind of a tramp. She's a loose woman. She's somebody who sleeps around. And, and I always read this story. That this is probably the way that Jesus saw her too. And, and so he sees her in this light, so he points out her sin. He says, you know, you've had five other men. Now you're with someone who's not your husband. I know what you've done, you little hussy. Quit it. Then I was reminded, women had no power to divorce their husbands. Only men could divorce their wives. I mean, if she really was a loose woman who all she did was sleep around, more than likely, she wouldn't have just been divorced, she would have been stoned because that's how they treated adulteresses in that day. That's what they did in Jesus' day with those who committed adultery. And, and, And so more than likely, the reason this woman had five husbands wasn't because she was someone who, who once, you know, she got tired of a man, she just moved on to the next one. The reason she had five husbands is because every single husband she'd ever had had ultimately rejected her. And they'd thrown her out like a rag. And now the guy that she's with, he doesn't even value her enough to marry her. And Jesus, he isn't saying, listen, you sinned and I saw it. He's saying, I understand the fact that you've been rejected over and over and over again in your life. And what I want you to know is I'm not here to reject you. I'm here to tell you that in spite of everything that you've been here, I want you to know I love you. You see, the worst thing in the world isn't being alone. It's being around people who make you feel alone. And this lady had lived in an environment where she had been made to feel alone for so long. You know, she had built up these high walls of protection. I'm going to reject you before you reject me. And why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. And Jesus says, if you only knew who you were talking to. I want to give you everything that you've been longing for your entire life. If you only knew who you've been talking to, what I want to give you is what you've wanted and what you've needed. Unconditional, unadulterated, unfailing love. And because of that, this woman who who has never been respected like that in her entire life, her defenses drop and she's like, give me the water. I want the water. And then Jesus says, go get your husband. What's he doing? He's connecting with her shame. You see, before she can ever receive the living water, before she can ever truly feel like she belongs, she's got to deal with the shame. And I'm sure in her mind, she's probably thinking, well, the only reason he's probably talking to me is because he really doesn't know me. I mean, if he really knew me, if he knew my past, there's no way he could ever accept me. How many of us live in that place? And Jesus says, go get your husband and come back. And immediately, you know, she does what we all do. She tries to hide. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. You've been rejected five times. And as a result, you've developed such a low view of yourself that now you're with a guy who won't even marry you. And what I want you to know, in my eyes, you're more than that. You know what makes this story so amazing? This is what I'm trying to help us understand. This is the power of belonging. What makes this story so amazing is that for the very first time in this woman's life, she meets somebody who knew her past, but didn't treat her in reference to her past. For for the very first time in her life, instead, she meets somebody who only treats her in reference to her purpose. (laughs) 
I know what you were created for. I know who you were created to be, and that is what I see. Okay, we got to finish. She says, sir, I, I see that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And I love this because Jesus, he, he responds to her and he gives this woman, this woman, okay, who nobody else values worthy enough of being taught any spiritual realities. Jesus gives this woman one of the most profound teachings on worship that there has ever been. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You see what's happening here? She, she's saying, I want to connect. I, I want to belong, but I don't know how to do it. And, and, and you Jews say that you should worship in Jerusalem, and other people say, no, you need to worship at Mount Horeb, and, and I'm not sure how this all looks, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus says, listen, it's not about the place. It's about the people. It's about, it's about the people's heart and this desire to connect with me. That's the qualifier. And, and by the way, he says, you qualify. You fit in. You belong. 24, verse 24. He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And verse 25, the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. What she's doing here is she's, again, she's opening herself up. She's, you know, intimacy, into me see. She's now opening herself up and allowing him to see in her. She's saying, she's saying you know what, I, I see now I can trust you and I can open myself up to allow you to be part of some of this stuff that I've been trying to work through. She says, I know and I believe there is a Messiah coming, but I'm not sure who he is. And I'm not sure what that means to me. All I know is that he's coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then in verse 26, Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And I love this story because it ends with this woman leaving her water pot at the well. Why does the Bible include that little detail? She, she, she leaves her water pot behind. I believe she left her water pot behind because she had just received living water. <laughs> and in her mind, she was never going to be thirsty anymore. And all of a sudden, because Jesus gives this woman a sense of belonging, and then she began to believe. And so what did she do next? Let, let, let me put it this way. She, she had a sense of belonging. She begins to believe. So how did she behave? Let me just read it for you. It says this. It says, And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I mean, this is a woman who spent all these years hiding, embarrassed of everything that's happened in her life, building up walls, hiding, not wanting anybody to know what she did. Now, all of a sudden, she meets somebody who accepted her where she was at, who loved her where she was at, and she's saying, hey, come see this guy who knew everything that I did, and he loved me still. She says, could this be the Messiah? Could this be what the Messiah is about? And so they came out of the town and they made their way towards him. And I love this, verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So what's the point? The point is because Jesus makes this woman feel like she belongs. She winds up believing and not only that, she winds up impacting an entire city for Christ. He takes the brokenness of her story. Everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew what she had done. And he takes the brokenness of his story and he redeems it and he uses it in order to trans-impact the lives of other people.
that this woman who doesn't feel like she fits in with the church folks. And Jesus is like, I like you. That's it. I like you. And you can hang out with me. It's okay for you to hang out with me. I mean, I know all about the five husband thing, and I know about the boyfriend thing who won't marry you, and I understand how much shame that you carry, but I still want to give you living water. Church, can I ask you, would it be okay if we just did what Jesus did? Can we just do that? Would it be okay, regardless of what any other church does, if, if we just became known as this place where everybody feels like they belong? Regardless of what their past is. Regardless of what present they're living in right now. Regardless of, of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what shame you carry with you, when, when you walk through the doors of Connecting Point Church of the Nazarene, the idea that you belong here needs to be more than simply a cute slogan on a wall. Who knows? I mean, who knows who might receive some living water simply because they were made to feel like they belonged? Who knows? how the world just might be impacted and become a better place because somebody who expected to find shame instead ran smack dab into grace and mercy and love. Can we just do that? That's what I want. I think that's what God wants for us. I think that's why he told us collectively, what kind of a church do I want you to be? I want you to be the kind of church where everybody feels like they belong regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they behave. Because I want to give them living water. And once they receive my living water, it's going to do something in their life that you can't do for them. <laughs> Let's just do that. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here this morning and you walked into this place and you've been searching. God's been calling you. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you came in, maybe, maybe you weren't brave enough to come in, maybe you're watching online. And in your mind, you think, you know those church folks, I've been around them before. A bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of judgmental whatever. That's probably what I'm going to get. So your defenses are up. I want you to know this morning, you belong here. No shame. Only freedom. That's what God wants for you. So what I want to do is I'm going to close things out. I want to pray. I know we've gone a little bit long, but you're used to it, and it's worth it. So I want to invite everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to some this morning, saying, I see you. I know you've been trying to hide. and I know you've built walls. I know you've been hurt. I know you feel shame. But I want you to know there's no condemnation in me. Only love. And freedom. And so if that's you, I, I want to pray for you this morning. Maybe, you know, you've, you've never tried this God thing. You've never given your life to him, you've never asked him to be the forgiver of your sins, the Lord of your life. If that's you this morning, just in the quietness of your own heart, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. Jesus, I need you. If, if what, what this guy is saying is really true, then that's what I need. I need you. I don't need all of the religiosity that's been thrown at me. I don't need all the other stuff. I just need you, Jesus, and your living water. So I'm going to give you all that I am, the good, the bad, the ugly, my sin, my hopes, my dreams. I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to ask that you take all of me and you give me all that you are. I want that living water. 
And so I receive you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, today my prayer for us as a church is that we would live out your vision for us. That we would would be the kind of people that you called us to be. And we would trust you that you can take care of your own PR work. That we don't have to be the sin police. We don't have to find everybody's deficiencies and make sure they're aware of them. And We can love people. We can pray for people. We can build relationships. And when the door is open, we can speak the truth. We've got to love first. So we pray you'd help us to always do that. Help me as a pastor to model that and to lead that. And so, Lord, we're going to give ourselves to you today. We trust you. We thank you that the only reason we can belong here is because you've created a sense of belonging for us and your family. And so we receive that today and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor.